uh, you know, there's, there's really only one Dharma talk about there's a possibility of confusion and the possibility of clarity. And actually, uh, all of the things that we talk about doing are things that we hope are going to tend in the direction of clarity because our lives will be better and the world will be better. That's the Dharma talk. So, but you can't, you can't stretch that out for more than 30 seconds and that just took or something. So you have to say it a new way every time. And honestly, uh, if I look around, uh, there is a new way every minute. Uh, on the way here this morning, I changed uh, two or three times how I was going to start. You see, I have a big pile of stuff that I've been collecting. I was beginning to remind myself of Jack. Jack teaches with a big pile of stuff. He brings stuff and then he shuffles it. I, I, I love him. He's you know, a very dear friend of mine. And he's got great stuff that he shuffles. And, and oh, I, I'm sorry I use that word because that, that he chooses to read as, a, as a, uh, examples of what he's saying. And all week long I see something and I think, oh, I have to talk about that. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And I changed three times this morning on the way here about where I would start. So that's why how come I have all this stuff here. And because what I'm convinced of is that everything, since the Dharma is what's true, that you can see it in every, in every moment. And I had a, a great plan for where I was going to start until, in fact, I, this is a greater plan. <laughs> until these last five minutes when we were sharing what's on our hearts and minds about other people, I always discover when we say the, the you know four or five minutes however long and mostly people I don't know you know sometimes when people mention a name I'm uh, I'm sorry about Phyllis uh, please get a flu shot if you haven't had one do you anybody everybody got a flu shot do you get a flu shot this is the H1N1 flu it's a very disagreeable flu and I heard yesterday from the CDC that they're very convinced that this year's vaccine really matches the H1N1. So if you, you're not likely to get it or you'll get a much attenuated case of it, and it's a bad thing. And they said, don't think because it's January not to get the shot. You can go to Walgreens or CVS or any place. Okay. Uh, so coming together in community, we inform each other. But actually, the, the biggest inform was, uh, as it always is, how we all hold somebody in our heart that we are really, uh, that we're really, really uh, uh, invested in. Well, now I'm going to start in a different way. I actually, I actually had this earlier in the week. Who saw the the cover of last week's New Yorker. I'll pass it around if, if you want, but I'll tell you what it is. You can see from wherever you are that it's children in a school play or a church pageant or something uh, doing some sort of a play. Uh, little children and the teachers playing the piano and directing it. Over here with their backs to us are the parents, presumably, of all these small children. And over here are all the cell phones of all the parents on which they're taking photos. And each one of them, if you look at the children, you think, oh, look at that beautiful tableau of children. Each one is uh, their boys and their girls and different shapes and different colors. And, in, and so there's a whole tableau of a, a diverse group of children. And in each cell phone, well, you'll see, in each cell phone, can I give this to you and pass it? In each cell phone is that person's child. But um, who knows that syndrome personally? You know it, if, if you have sat in, a, in an auditorium where 600 people file in for graduation in cap and gown, so they look pretty much the same, you are straining to see your person come in. And then you think, ah, there they are, okay. When my youngest child was dancing a lot in uh, San Francisco, taking classes at the ballet school, then she's in her mid-50s now, so this is uh, 40 years ago. Uh, 
the uh, Pearl Hendricks, who was uh, the housekeeper who helped me in those days so I could go to work and have all those children, would come with me to watch at least one performance of The Nutcracker every, every December when the professional company has, uses all of the, many of the students in their school as children at the party at The Nutcracker. And also, as even littler children, the feet under the Chinese dragon. So the Chinese dragon runs in, and it's got eight pairs of feet under it, eight, eight pairs of legs, and they're all a pair of legs in black leotard, and black tights. And that dragon runs in. And Pearl could always say to me, that's Emmy, the third one. <laughs> from eight sets of legs from wherever we're sitting because you can pick out which one is your set of legs. We, I, I read in, the, in yesterday's paper that fish are more likely, for certain kind of fish that they did this test on, there's, there are neurobiologists testing everything now. And it's, if I were young, that's probably what I'd say. It's so interesting. They have female fish that they uh, have on one side of a glass divide in, a, in an aquarium, and on the other side there's other fish, males of that same species, but they discover that, the, that uh, here's a male that's floating around in there, and these females, or a female, is looking at him, and at some point they introduce that female into a whole tank full of male fish, including that one, which is the one that she finds to mate with. Now that's really interesting, you know, that because we think, well, you know, fish, they navigate by heat, they navigate by this, they navigate by that. Apparently, they look at each other as well. <laughs> you remember the march of the penguins, yes. you know? Yes. And here come, you know, a few hundred penguins that look to me exactly the same, and they find each other, and they don't find the wrong person. Didn't you find that touching, that they found each other? All of that stuff, I don't know what to say about it, but it's amazing. Some way that we are wired for affinity down to the fish level and the penguin level. So definitely with people, and we look for our people. And so really what I wanted to talk about, among other things, is that particular ability to look at other people, look at our people and see, oh, there's my person, that's the third legs in. Uh, and develop from that a sense of awareness and empathy about what other people feel about their people. So that when we sit and we listen and someone says, I'm concerned about my nephew or my this or my that, who has this or that, it's probably true for you as it's true for me that I don't know who said that. And I definitely don't know the nephew, but I know the feeling that would be involved in that so that we feel for each other. You know, we have that expression. We say, I feel for you. And I, I really, uh, I think we can say that. Uh, I'm pretty careful never to say I know exactly how you feel because I can't know exactly how somebody else feels. But I can, I can intuit pretty reasonably usually how they might feel in a certain circumstance. And actually it's a neuronal error if we're born without the ability to intuit. And sometimes people have a gene that really handicaps them in intuiting. And then they have to have special classes, people on the uh, autism scale and people on the Asperger scale. They can learn. They can learn facial expressions and they can learn how to do it, but it's not in them uh, just as a normal, it, it's a genetic change. So I was thinking about that, and I thought about, and I've probably talked to those of you who know me. By the way, you know what I forgot to do this morning? I forgot to say who's new. I always do that. But today I didn't always. So who has never been here before? I'm so sorry. Uh, what's your name? Toby. Toby, where do you live? Or? In Emeryville. In Emeryville. Did you come with Julie? or? I did. Oh, I'm so glad. I haven't seen Julie in a long time. I was happy to see her. So, Toby, I'm so glad you came. I'm so sorry about your daughter's surgery. Thank you. I hope it goes well. What's her name? Leslie. Leslie. So I'm glad we said her name out. Come whenever. Thank you. Welcome. 
Who else has never been here? We always say hello to people. What's your name? Sarah. Sarah? Mm -hmm. Do you live far or near? Um, Mill Valley. Oh, that's pretty near. Yeah. Well, yeah. welcome. Come anytime. Who else? Yes. Uh, I'm Bruce. It's the first time I've been to this class. And I live just over the hill in Lucas Valley. Uh, welcome, Bruce. You looked a little familiar to me. Have we seen it? That's why I thought I, I knew you. Well, Happy New Year again. Happy New Year to you. <laughs> Who else is, yeah? Um, I'm Heather, and I'm visiting from Tahoe. From Tahoe. Wish they got some snow too. They do too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you're here, Heather. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ellie. I'm living in San Anselmo. I'd uh, like to make this known more of a regular practice, so I'm glad that you're here. Well, well, please come again. We Wednesdays always happen. It's not always me who's here, but it's mostly me and otherwise Donald. Rothberg, and in March, for a whole month, Tony Bernhardt, because Donald and I will both be sitting for a month up on the month-long retreat. We are both of us not teaching it. We are both of us retreatants for a month. So maybe it's totally exciting. I'm thrilled about it. It's been a long time since I was able to do that. But... Um, and people say, what are you going to do when you get there? Uh, and I don't, I, and in fact, I, I don't know. I actually think on the one hand that metta practice and mindfulness practice are quite the same. So it's, it's an heuristic, it's an add-on. It's not important to say I'm going to just do metta or I'm going to just do this. I think they're the same in different forms. But I'm not sure what form I'm going to really want to work on. And I'll see. So... I'll let you know. But I'll look the same in April when I come back. I, I, I really doubt that I'll float in the door or otherwise. Um, that would be so cool. <laughs> so one of the things that I think about a lot, and if you've been here a long time, you probably... Is that everybody who's new? I'm sorry we didn't do that earlier, but you're very welcome. Oh, I'm sorry. My name is Tom, also known as Wozo. I'm from San Diego. Oh, are you just up for a little bit? or? Yeah, we, we passed through. We went to Humboldt and saw the Redwoods starting the new year off with some uh, Dharma. Oh, that's great. That's great. And now you're on your way back? Yes, today. Oh. Thank you for your... Oh, drive safe. So what I reminded me is I said the people who've been here a long time know that from time to time I come back to the story of the mustard seed. And I talk about that it's a little cool in its rendition to me. In the, the, well, I'll read it to you because I was uh, in my preparations during this week for beginning the new year. I thought, well, let me go back to some really original texts, things I haven't read. This is fun to go back to. It's called The Teachings of the Compassionate Buddha. And I clearly read it uh, 30 years ago or, or more. It's, a, it's got yellowed pages. It's got tiny writing that I'm writing my little commentary in on the side. But I was realizing that every time that we tell a story, it's an iteration of the story. And depending on how someone else told it, it might have a whole different sensibility. And I have been telling the story of the mustard seed and in the way I most heard it, uh, which is not as kind as this one. So I'm going to read you this one because it makes the point that I'd really like to make for today. And this author is saying, the reader must not allow the brevity of this little story of Kisa Gatami to obscure the profound revelatory and spiritual significance. Two of the Buddha's most important doctrines are taught in it. The source from which it comes is not as ancient, presumably, as the scriptures drawn down upon the rest of this section, drawn upon in the rest of this section, 
But there's every reason to believe that these main lessons authentically reflect the Buddha's teaching. So here are those two things. The first can be stated very briefly. Everything in the realm of phenomenal existence is in change and is transitory. Whatever becomes passes away. Whatever is born must die. The Buddha's next to the last sentence when he died is some rendition of uh, transient are all conditioned things. Everything that arises passes away. That, um, and we know that. Everybody knows that. In the, and still, it seems to be the main point that we guard ourselves against actually knowing. If we actually knew all the time that every day is this precious day which we're not going to have again, we once for and for all would clear out all the nonsense out of our mind because there wouldn't be time for nonsense. Every living creature, like every other thing, is a compound of elements. Sooner or later, they must dissolve. Hence, a realistic acceptance of death is an essential part of the true adjustment to reality. But now there's a second lesson. Why is he telling the whole lesson before we, before we have the story? I should tell you the story first. But anyway, here we are. The second lesson is the essential is the story of essential connection in the Buddha's experience and teaching between a realistic acceptance of death and the realization of an outgoing compassion to all living beings who, like ourselves, are subject to it. That it's just not everything that arises passes away, but that is our shared circumstance. That's the one shared truth that we all are living and evolving proof of. As long as one is completely absorbed in one's own grief, arising from the death of a dear one or anything, I would say, there's no way of gaining victory over pain or release from the numbing bitterness that is to accept the, but that is to accept the numbness. Wait a minute. He may, oh, I see, it's very small print, excuse me. Release from the numbing bitterness of loss, he may gradually forget, as most people do, but that's to accept the numbness rather than fully to adjust to reality. I think I've told you about the fact that I was an adult when I realized that my mother had not had just one a sister. She had had two, and she had had a sister who died at age uh, four or five, five when my mother was um, uh, nine years old and her younger sister was one or two years old. And I didn't know about that sister who died until I was an adult. And I knew both my grandparents. My grandfather lived to be in his late 90s. There was no artifact, no photo, no memory, no nothing. It was expunged from the record. And I, th and I know that that was not unusual in those times. I have friends who's had siblings who died, and no one spoke of them again. It was a time when, I, I guess, when there was no, the, that was the way that people dealt with unspeakable loss. But talking about the numbness that maybe uh, you don't even know about. If instead one can identify and feeling with the experience of others who suffer similarly, he will be freed from her own grief and in a compassionate awareness with all living beings. So this is a story of Kisa Gautami. Gautami was her family name, but because she tired easily, she was called Kisa Gautami or Frail Gautami. That's, that's nice. When she was born at Savati in a poverty-stricken house, when she grew up, she married going to the house of her husband's family to live. There, because she was a daughter of a poverty-stricken house, they treated her with the contempt. After a time, she gave birth to a son, and then they accorded her respect. When that boy of hers was old enough to play and run hither and about, he died. Sorrow sprang up within her, thought she, since the birth of my son, I, who was once denied honor and respect in this very house, have received respect. These folk may even seek to cast my son away. Away, taking her son on her hip, 
This is the son who's died. She went about from one house to another saying, give me medicine for my son. Whenever people encountered her, they said, where did you ever meet with medicine for the dead? So saying, they clapped their hands and laughed in derision. She had not the slightest idea what they meant. Now a certain wise man saw her and thought, this woman must have been driven out of her mind by sorrow for her son. But medicine for her, no one is likely to no one else is likely to know. The possessor of the ten forces alone is likely to know. And he said, Woman, as for medicine for your son, there is no one else who knows. The possessor of the ten forces, the foremost individual in the world of men and in the world of gods, resides at a neighboring monastery. Go to him and ask. That man, the man speaks the truth, so she thought. Taking her son on her hip, when the Buddha sat down, she took her stand in the outer circle of the congregation and said, Oh, exalted one, give me medicine for my son. The teacher, seeing that she was ripe for conversion, said, You did well, Gautami, in coming here for medicine. Go enter the city, make the rounds of the entire city, beginning at the beginning, and in whatever house no one has ever died, from that house fetch tiny grains of mustard seed. Alas, the people in the, uh, in the various houses said to her, we don't have such a seed in this house. Someone has died. And other people said to her, what are you talking about? It's impossible to find a place where there haven't been people who have died. Each house that she went to, the second and the third, then she thought, this entire city must be this way. This is what the Buddha, full of compassion for the welfare of mankind, must have seen. Overcome with emotion, she went outside the city, carried her son to the burning ground, and holding him in her arms, said, Dear little son, I thought that you alone had been overtaken by this thing which men call death, but you are not the only one death has overtaken. This is a law common to all mankind. So saying, she cast her son away. And she uttered, no village law, no law of market town, no law of a single house is this. Of all the world and all the worlds of gods, this is the only law. All things are impermanent. And when she had said so, she went to the teacher and said to the, the teacher said to her, Gautami, did you get the tiny grades, get grains of mustard seed? And she said, done, reverend son, sir, is the business of the mustard seed. Only give me refuge. And she went on to be a disciple of the Buddha. I like that better than any version than I have thus read. Uh, the, the shortened versions, it's a little long, but the shortened versions say, don't have all that preamble about her not really having such a good, a good experience before and not having developed wisdom. And also, don't make the point that the Buddha, in sending her out, was not that only she should get the wisdom that all things pass away, but the compassionate connection to this happens to everyone. That is the clue that I haven't read in any other rendition of this first, that it happens to everyone. It doesn't, hap it doesn't help so much, in, the, in my experience, in the moment of loss, of someone that's dear to you. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal catastrophe. And it doesn't matter that it happens to everyone. In that moment, it doesn't matter. After a while, I think the fact that it does happen to everyone somehow is the support. It's, a, you know, it's somehow entering into the awake world of real beings. And somehow, it's both a developer of compassion for other people <laughs> in whatever it is that they've lost. You know, I, was, I was driving in my car yesterday and I heard the news that, um, what's her name? Lindsey Graham, who won the gold medal for the United States. Lindsey Vaughn. Lindsey Vaughn, who won the gold medal for the United States in the last Olympics, cannot compete um, because she's, her knee isn't good. She needs knee surgery. 
And they uh, interviewed her, and uh, the, the one word they said, we asked her, you know, how do you feel about having to issue this news? And she said, I feel devastated. And I really appreciated that in that moment, she's devastated. You know, you could say, you know, okay, you have a gold medal, uh, things happen, uh, knees are fragile, it, it's, it, it could have been by a half a second, something, whatever, but it doesn't matter. In the moment of a personal loss, it's not a person, it's just, but our, the, our, our minds feel loss in a, in, a, in a very tremendous way. I tell you that story. Not to belittle that she feels devastated, I'm sure she does. She spent every minute probably for the last 15 years that she wasn't sleeping or, or doing something, going to school, fixing up her skiing so she could get another gold medal, and that's what she wanted to do. So it's a big loss, and down the road, uh, it'll be something else, and she'll be in a category of an older athlete who once did that. But in the moment, we're devastated. And I think to myself, it's so amazing to think about the shifts that the mind can do. We can think about the pain in the world, which is enormous. Uh, of, of, uh, I told somebody yesterday, or the day before, I'd been reading in the paper about uh, the food scarcities in Afghanistan, and it showed ter terrible pictures, well, real pictures, but such sad pictures of babies with swollen stomachs <clears throat> from malnutrition in a world where everybody could get fed. And it's so painful to think about that. And, so you th and that's even in the abstract. There are people at the other end of the world, I don't know them, but they're people, and I feel about you see a picture of a mother holding a child with a swollen belly. You don't have to know that mother, and she doesn't have to be next door. You feel for them. But then again, if somebody calls you and they're next door, it's really uh, you know, a, a, a huge thing. And, and the same with ourselves. We have always our own hopes and desires, and our hopes and desires for the whole world. I don't know what to make of that, except that I think the mind is really extraordinary that uh, it can do that, that it can contemplate the whole world and really wish sincerely for an equity of sharing resources in the world and at the same time really, really want things to go well for your person. That it's not, it's not both. I think it's, I think it's uh, we really, really wish well for our person and by extension for everybody's person for the same reason that the Buddha is saying here. When we learn that everybody has what I have, then I am in the community of people. And that, that, that this is, when I listen to what, doesn't it happen to you when I listen to things that people have? They're not the things that are happening in my family or that are uh, imperiling or jeopardizing people in my family. We have different things, but it's something that... Uh, If I were going to do this as Buddhism 101, which is my first, my first decision, was I would make a list of the things that I wanted to cover in these three weeks that so would be essential dharma. So it would be the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Four Brahma Viharas. And they will be, but not as treatises on that. I just now, a minute ago, said the First Noble Truth. There's always something. That's the first noble truth, that you cannot, in this world, it's not possible to have it all together right once and for all. The, um, I used to know that as a, as a, as a, as a child. I, I, I was a, a more than usually sickly child, so I spent a lot of time home from school in the age of um, before antibiotics. Uh, as I listen to soap operas all the time on radio, uh, so it's a long time ago, and I, and I but that I kept myself company all day long listening to the soap operas, and I knew from a very early age that when a, an episode would finish, and they would say, "I'm so ha we're going to be so happy now for the rest of our lives that we were wonderful," <laughs> that you know if I got well and went back to school and then. 
took ill some weeks or months later and was back in bed, those same people would be feuding about something terrible. Or, or I've never been so happy and then go to commercial break and come back, ring, ring, telephone, car accident, in a coma. That, and I used to laugh at that, but actually it's not funny. That's how our lives are. And from one minute to the next, you don't know. You don't know. And if we knew, I really, so now we go over to the, <laughs> not quite so fast maybe. I wanted to tell you, what, wait a minute, there were two reasons that I changed my mind on the way over. I was, wait, wait, I have to think about it. I had a place to start, it was the cover of that. We have particularities of affection from which we can possibly imagine. Uh, and I changed what I was going to talk about because of something that I heard on the news in the gym earlier. But it'll come to me. On my way here, I heard on the radio, I, I thought to myself, if I ever write another book, which I'm not, because I've said everything I have to say, I would call it, this is Buffalo, because I was listening to the news and it's very hyped up about, it's a, it is a terrible health hazard and, 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 and safety hazard, the fact that half of the country is so completely frozen and blizzarded and who knows what it means in terms of climate change, and, but we have unusual climate now. And, and they really like to have exciting stories. So, but there was one moment where CBS and in, in, uh, they said, we'll go to our, uh, our reporter in WXYZ in Buffalo, New York, where they're having a blizzard and 26 inches of snow and ice on the freeway. And the reporter says, I'm talking to John Smith, who has a car repair place. So what do you think, John? And John says, it's okay, it's Buffalo, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I think he was looking for more, you know, like, whoa, never in my history was it such a refrigerator as now. But it's Buffalo, you know? That, and I thought that, you know, that's really it. <laughs> so I thought that could be it. Like, you say, how are you? You say, I'm okay, it's life, you know? These kind of things happen. This happens and that happens and something you never heard of happens. And my cousin, whom I love very much now, has some fluid behind his eye. He's my age. I went to school with him, and I, I love him dearly. Talk on the phone, so I hadn't known. He said, well, I have fluid that's leaking in from some hardening of the arteries. So what do you do for that? Well, they have to inject uh, medicine into the back of my eyeball. Yeah, like, ah, isn't that terrible? I said, ah, that's terrible, isn't it? He said, yeah, it's pretty bad. I said, they anesthetize you? He said, well, not really. He said, they just, you know, they, they freeze your eyes. I said, well, that sounds bad. He said, well, you know, it is, and you can't move. But whoever even heard of that to think about that could happen to it, you know, that something else could happen, something else. That's Gilda Radner's, it's always something. But, you know, you could look at it's always, it's always, always this or it's always that and forget, and this is, uh, we have plenty of enough time, good, uh, that um, one of, okay, the first noble truth is life is inevitably challenging because things are always changing. The fact that things are always changing is the is one of the three characteristics of experience. So in case you were keeping score of how many lists we actually do. <laughs> three characteristics of experience, uh, first of them is that everything is temporal. Just everything arises and passes away. So on the one hand, we lose everything that's dear to us if they don't lose us first. On the other hand, this particular illness, if it doesn't end our lives, will end this particular unhappy period will uh, end, everything will end. I once, many years ago, said, and I, I wouldn't say this anymore, that even the mind devastated by the worst experience, eventually uh, life happens and it uh, passes away. And somebody said, you know, my experience, I'm going to pass away before it passes away. 
And in the moment, I realized I had spoken too uh, lightly. There are life experiences, and I know people who have had them, for whom those experiences never pass away. They are always the wallpaper of their mind, alas. One of the things that if I were a neurobiologist in my next life, or another life, or if I were young all over again, is I'm so interested in why a number of people who have the same experience have different wallpaper. And some recuperate and some do not. That's actually where I want to go next, but I want to tell you, what was the thing that I, no, it was, it, it's Buffalo. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> And how do you keep the mind? Oh, what cheers the mind? What cheers the mind up? That the, ha the other half, well, no, I, I started. First noble truth is things are, things are always changing. The imperative to have things different, be different from the way they are. Craving in the mind, un finding this moment unsatisfactory is, is suffering. It isn't the cause of suffering, it is suffering. If this moment is unsatisfactory in any way, my mind is in a suffering state. Uh, really, from big or little, you know, when you think about it, the kinds of things that the mind gets in a suffering state about sometimes are very trivial and sometimes awful. But it's not that things aren't sometimes really awful. It's that the mind not being able to just get, this is awful, I am sad, I'm really miserable. I'm really confused. Uh, and not make it worse than that. So the Buddha did not promise the end of pain, promise the end of suffering. And the end of suffering is the very particular suffering that is tension in the mind, unable to tell itself and reconcile itself to the truth of what's happening. Gautami in the story is not not sad about the passing of her child. She is sad, as we are. What she is, is no longer alienated from life and anguished about it. She feels herself in the community of people who know these things happen. Let's hold each other up. We are all of us tremendously courageous. We all got up this morning and took up our lives yet again another day, waiting for husbands to get reports, waiting for this, waiting for that, waiting for the phone to ring and people to say it's okay. Or I passed my exam. Or why didn't I hear from my grandson about whether he got that job? I know he should have heard yesterday. I'll call him. No, I won't call him. No, I won't call him. No, no. Why I'd be intruding so much? He'll call me when he knows. Back and forth. Okay, he either got it or didn't get it. Take a breath. You'll find out soon enough. You know that we angst over things. Like I actually think that the instruction that I gave you this morning, third noble truth, is that peace is possible. I gave it this morning as the instruction. And when Ajahn Amaro says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease of the mind, that is the natural peace and ease of the mind. He means there is such a natural peace and ease. Not that some people have it and other people don't have it. That the, that the wallpaper of our natural mind is peace and ease. Hmm. I, 30 years ago, long, long time ago, it just popped into my mind. Do you remember when Larry King was doing uh, a daily talk show interviewing uh, celebrity type people and people phoned in? He interviewed a, a, um, a swami with a turban in the early, early days where uh, Eastern religion or meditation was not at all well known. This must have been in the 70s. I remember it made such an impression on me because people did phone in in that in that program, and a lot of the people who phoned in had provocative questions. That's probably why the uh, producer passed those <coughs> questions through, because they're provocative, and they like provocative better than not provocative. It makes better television, you know. I know that because I've been on television where a minute before a presumed discussion, someone says into your ear, be sure to ask contentious questions of the other yeah. of the other panelists. I, 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 since I told you that, I will tell you, and I'll remember to go back to Larry King. I was with th three other panelists on Thanksgiving Day, three other religions, three, four religious leaders, so to speak, 
I'm saying, so to speak, about myself, because I don't call myself a religious leader, but we were. Anyway, and we're in four different cities, and we're all plugged into studio. We're in studios, and we've got things in our ear that say, okay, we're on in 30 seconds now. We're all going to talk about Thanksgiving in the tradition of your religion, giving thanks, gratitude, which is what I'm about to talk about. And I'm all relaxed. I'm thinking I'm going to do it. And 15 seconds before, they said, now remember, ladies, ladies, remember, um, you know, be provocative and ask each other questions because this is television and we want to make it interesting. I thought, ah, you know. <laughs> uh, but then here's this maybe eight-minute interview with these four ladies, maybe not even, maybe five. Minutes. Everybody was lovely. No provocative. So this person said, okay, everybody provoke. It would have been a very bad thing if all these four religious, presumed women of expansive, loving-kindness minds were going to provoke each other. <laughs> anyway, back to Larry King. People gave provocative questions to the Swami because it's a, what is an unusual religious example. And he was just so steady in his answers, calm just and clear. Uh, and engaged, but un, unprovoked. And at some point, Larry King leaned over and said to him, looked in his eyes, and said, it's so quiet in there. How did you make it so quiet in there? And the Swami said back to him, it is quiet in there. We just mess it up so much. And that's like 30, 40 years ago I heard that. And it stayed in my mind. Because it, I heard an echo of it when I just in my own mind when I just told you about Ajahn Amaros. I let the mind and body assume it is quiet in there. We mess it up so much, you know. So I have the thought. I wonder if Nathan got that job, and it's just a thought. So if I have that thought and I followed it with, well, I hope he did. May he be well and thrive. Now breath in, breath out. That would be nothing. I can think about Nathan and his jobs. I, mean, I wonder if he got that job. How come I didn't hear from him? He said he'd call me about the job. I wonder if that's a bad sign. I wonder if I should call him. See, I should have really texted him earlier and said da 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 You know, you can just leave a thought alone or you can get up and dance with it, and thereby stirring up a little dust up in the mind. And then have to, do you recognize that? <laughs> you don't have that? There's all kinds of stuff that goes in the mind that we choose to get up and dance with and to say, I'm going to sit this one out. This is, a, it's, it's, a, it's a meditation instruction. Third noble truth is we could live in peace, which doesn't mean that we won't have thoughts. I wonder if he got the job, what didn't, I hope he did, or even wishes, I hope he did, but that it doesn't have to dust up a storm. And if he doesn't get it, Someone else was the better person to get it. Not everybody's grandchild can get the same job at the same time. You know, that, uh, even that you want yours too, you know, that uh, uh, you do want yours too. But, it's, uh, but otherwise it's somebody else's. It's a really, um, the Dalai Lama saying, it's so wonderful to be able to rejoice in the good fortune of somebody else because it gives you, what, six billion, eight billion more chances, eight billion to one chances that you'll be happy. And if you're waiting to be pleased yourself. The other night I thought about this. Um, I want to come. I'll, I will get to where I want to be. I thought about it because I went to a concert at um, Davies Hall on Monday night. It was a, uh, uh, a friend of mine gave me tickets to a uh, birthday party celebration of Gordon Getty. And I didn't actually know who. Gordon Getty is a philanthropist in San Francisco who apparently has funded a lot of wonderful initiatives in San Francisco. And among them, uh, the, the symphony to some apparently important degree. And he's also went to, uh, went to the Conservatory of Music as part of his training and has written some music. So they had this whole program of Michael Tilson Thomas conducting uh, a part of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which is the most and the most amazing part of it, well, and uh, also conducting some pieces that Gordon Getty wrote with a full San Francisco chorus. It was great, and with 
Frederica von Stade there to sing, wow. and with Placido Domingo. And, oh, see, I, I, I said it per purposely in that order, because when she told me about it, it's also, oh, 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 okay. And uh, Maestro Domingo was conducting the overture, conducted, conducted the orchestra in the, in the overture to Fledermouse, which is one of his signature things, and it's a very holiday thing to do. <coughs> and he's great. And, and he also sang uh, uh, an aria from the second act of La Traviata that's extremely well known. And then he said later, I chose that because uh, in honor of uh, Mr. Getty, because at one point in his living room, I, uh, I remember I sat at the piano and played and sang the whole second act of Traviata. So, but the whole audience was so happy for Gordon Getty that he had had, that we didn't all sit in that living room and hear that, but we did hear him that night, and it was beautiful. And as I, he finished singing, I'm happy to tell you he's in great voice for an older man. And when he finished, the whole entire hall stood up with a huge bravo and carried on, and, and the whole place sang happy birthday. And, and I think, I don't know Gordon Getty, but you get so, uh, picked up from people being happy and people appreciating and people having talent. You know, nobody in my family ever wanted to be a singer. So I don't even think, oh, I wish so-and-so in my family or so-and-so that I knew had made it good like Placido. He's just really, very few people get to have a, a, a voice like that. And to be in a group of people all appreciating is such a tonic. And I think to myself, really, that uh, we have in every moment, this maybe is the crux of what I wanted to say today, so I'm glad I got to say it. We have in every moment the possibility in that moment of appreciating or not that moment. And that will come in the fourth noble truth, fourth noble truth, which we'll talk about more next week because it has eight particular ways of practicing in it. But one of those ways is called wise effort or right effort. And it's the effort to keep out of your mind thoughts that um, bring more pain and upset and um, uh, what are they? they're not called unwholesome thoughts. To, to take, take thoughts like greed, to recognize greed and envy and jealousy and disappointment and um, uh, I say envy, jealousy, uh, lust, um, yearning, disappointment. Uh, they all come up. They're human feelings to have. But we really don't have to entertain them. We don't have to dwell on them. Often we do, I think, because they hurt. And so they call your attention. But I think what the Buddha is teaching, what every great spiritual tradition, I think, is fundamentally teaching is that we have the capacity as human beings to choose not to. And to instead cultivate in the mind at that point, not disregard them or not, not know that they're there. Then they become, what did he say over here? Uh, they make for numbness. When you don't notice, when you, when you refuse to notice the grief in your mind at the loss of someone who's dear to you, when you refuse to notice the fact that you're in a rage, about somebody or something, that then it makes numbness in you. That you notice, but at the same time try to do something to keep your mind in a shape enough to be able to hold the amount of that pain and not get completely disoriented by it and confused by it. Because really the confused is a good word because then we choose poorly for the, last, for the next minute. I was thinking about that this morning in terms of uh, the choices that we get to make. You know, something all of a sudden good happens. Then we think, oh, you know, I was in such a bummed out mood, but then something happened. But what if nothing much happened except noticing I'm not in a good mood? So this is Billy Collins. I read this the other day, and then I found, well, I'll read you this Billy Collins first. 
This is called Liu Yong, who uh, apparently was a poet in the Sung dynasty, um, time of Taoism in China. This poet of the Sung dynasty is so miserable, the wind sighs around the trees, a single swan passes overhead, and he is alone on the water in his skiff. If only he appreciated life in 11th century China as much as I do. No loud cartoons on television, no music from the ice cream truck, just the call of elated birds and the steady flow of the water clock. I really love Billy Kynes. That's, that's got two dharmas in it. First of all, uh, he has this uh, apparently melancholy uh, Taoist poem and say that uh, he wasn't appreciating that he didn't have loud cartoons and other things disturbing his peace, which apparently he must have now. But also the other dharmic point of it's always the, the tendency to think other people had it better or have it better or that this person over there, or this one that looks like they're in such a good shape, they have it better than I do. And we have no idea what's going on in other people's minds or in their bodies, or what's going to be with them the next minute. It might be all great and, f and fabulous now, and, uh, and not tomorrow. You know, we're all just operating on uh, karma, really. The meaning of karma, which was the other thing I was going to talk about in these three weeks and talk about it. My, my own growing appreciation of the sense of karma is uh, it has to do with things change and that they influence. Everything that arises passes away and everything that happens has an effect on everything else that happens that causes that there are actually three of those three um, what do they call them? Three factors of experience. Three truths. Marks of experience. Factors and marks of experience. One is that everything passes. The second is that suffering is that tension in the mind, unable to accommodate the change, changes as they're happening. And uh, the third is that everything is caused by causes and causes other things. This is a causal universe. It's a lawful universe. It doesn't mean that it's caused all by human beings or by volition. If a tree branch falls down, it could be caused by the fact that there's a drought and the, there wasn't enough moisture in the tree. And it's nobody's fault. A lot of things happen. The, the, the snowstorm wasn't anything that, that tying up the Northeast. wasn't anybody's fault. It happened because of everything else that happened. And the drought is happening because of everything else. And who knows what, you know, if it's in some way has to do with uh, the way the, the, the climate has been changed by human beings. But it's by something. And that my appreciation of karma is, uh, is that I, uh, the, the, how to say this? The more I really get it that things happen because they're the only thing that could happen at that moment. Could it change in the next moment? But at this moment, this is what's happening because of what happened before. In the next moment, it could be different. So I'm going to read you this other Billy Collins poem. It's only a cold, cloud-hooded weekday in the middle of winter. But I am sitting up in my body like a man riding an elephant, draped with a carpet of red and gold, his turban askew, singing a song about the return of the cranes. And I am inside my own head like a tiny humunculus, a creature so excited over his naked existence that he scurries all day from one eye socket to the other just to see what scenes are unfolding before me, what streets, what pastures. And just to think that hours ago I was sour as Samuel Johnson with a few bad sherries in him, quarreling in a corner of the rat and parrot, full of scorn for the impertinence of men, the inconstancy of women. And to think further that I have no idea what might have uplifted me, unless it was when I first opened the front door to look at the sky, so extensive and burdened with snow. Or was it this morning when I walked along the reservoir, 
was it when the dog scared up some ducks off the water and I stopped to watch them flapping low over the frozen surface and I counted them in flight, all seven, the leader and the six hurrying behind. I love that. I read it on, I read it on Wednesday. You know, you, my sense of that poem, is it not yours, is that those things happened and he needed to have noticed that that's the piece, that the mind noticing, choosing to notice the birds in flight, choosing to notice the snow and the clouds, in the moment of choosing to notice that, it is by itself letting go of the stories of, boy, am I in a sour mood, like Samuel Johnson. The act of choosing something else. A friend of mine told me a story yesterday. Uh, I can probably tell it in three minutes. I said I'll probably... I can prepare 10,000 things to talk about, which I didn't do, but he told me a story yesterday, which is just that thing. He, um, <coughs> I hadn't seen him in a couple of months. He's a friend with whom I meet every couple of months, and we're old buddies. And He said, uh, I have, uh, I said, how's the fly fishing going? And he said, yeah, I still fly fish. He said, it's great. It's a, but not as much. He said, I have a new thing. He said, I met some people, I met some men, who track. You know, we don't hunt, but we track. And uh, you, we go out once a, once a month, we meet for a day, and we go to some area somewhere, a little bit wilderness, and we walk around, and they know how to track, and they look at scat, and they look at footsteps, uh, uh, paw prints, and they know who was there. And he said, I'm learning how to do it. And he said, it's so fascinating that you could see <coughs> that here is, uh, uh, he said, you know what scat is? He said, it's animal poop. And they, I, I did know, that's what it is, animal poop. You see, you look at it and you can see what did that animal eat. You can see the fur in the poop. So I thought I'd never be excited about seeing that, but then you think, wow, I found this and look what's been here. And uh, anyway, he said, he said, but I do fly fish. He said, last week, I, uh, I, on, 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 the, on, on the first, I decided I was just going to take the afternoon. My family was all doing something. I drove up to such and such a place. I'd never fished in that river. But by the time I got there, it was getting late. I parked my car. I had to come down a whole hillside. It was a hard embankment. I got all the way down there, and then I found I'd, I'd left a crucial piece of my gear up in the car. Okay, so I had to get all the way back up the side of this embankment, got up to my car, I was annoyed with myself, the sun was setting, it's already one, you know, it's an hour before sunset. I find the piece of gear that I didn't have. I'm coming back down to the, to, and I'm really annoyed with myself for setting out so late and I didn't get miss the, the gear and I'm getting down and I have to watch myself. He said, as I get down, I'm walking back to the riverbank, I see a footstep. Uh, a paw print, and I think, huh, that looks like a dog. No, it doesn't look like a dog print. It looks actually more like a cat print, but not much bigger than a house cat. I wonder what that is. And he said, so then I followed it. I followed it, and it was really bigger paw prints than a house cat. I thought, I wonder if it's a bobcat. You know, that, uh, that I heard that there were bobcats. And he said, I followed it for about 20 minutes, he said, and I found, uh, this, is a, this is about finding scat and what's in it, and, uh, but, and I knew this and that. He said, and so I looked for it for 15 minutes or so. He said, and all of a sudden, I realized I was so excited. And then I went back and I, I cast three, three casts and I caught a fish and I went home. He said, I was fine. But he, but it was, it, it, but he said, you know, I got so excited, and so what I wanted to really say is that being mindful. When we talk about, we, I, I keep telling people I teach mindfulness. I say, yeah, mindfulness, this, mindfulness, that, mindfulness, mindful, everything. I said, but mindful means attention focused, and the the experience of attention focused doesn't matter on your breath, on animal paw prints, on scat. On, on trout lines, attention focused is attention focused and it wakes up the mind and it makes a feeling of really elation because the stories that we tell each other, ourselves, remind each other, each, ourselves, 
are what completely demoralizes the mind and gets it caught up in muck and mire. I know what I was thinking about in the gym this morning. I was watching, just now that the Academy Awards are coming up, um, I, on, every, on all the televisions they have uh, big ads telling me what, um, what uh, movies I, I should like. And they're not always the ones that I like, so I, I mm -hmm, says, all the New York Times critics like X. Hmm, is that so? Okay. Watch my mind do a little dance. Now, oh, here's the last thing I, I, I thought this morning. There was an article with Melissa Meyer, who is the CEO. There was a, a thing on the TV, watching the morning news on the treadmill. So Melissa Meyer is the CEO of Yahoo. Now they have a new iteration of Yahoo that the new thing is going to be that your telephone will now have an app that having learned what you like and what kinds of things you look up will sift through all the stuff for you. So it'll tell you what you like. It's going to give you the information. It will have culled out. It's going to be your, your personal sorter. And it'll give you what you need to see for your work or whatever. I'm going to Amsterdam at the end of the month. Since I bought my ticket on Air France, Every day I get notices in my inbox about booking.com, hotels in Amsterdam, sites in Amsterdam, what I could do in Amsterdam. Like the whole world knows I'm in Amsterdam. And all I did was buy a ticket on Air France. And I don't know that they got that from my visa card or the Air France or whatever. But there might be a lot of other things that I want to go to, but this is the stuff I'm getting. And I thought, you know, I, uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say because I know it's 11 o'clock. But I had this image this morning that when I was watching these ads for movies, um, that this is the best one. This is really the best one. This is the best one. And I thought about each time that I'm doing something and I start a long preoccupation about did he get the job or did he not get the job and da -da 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 -da. I'm not having my life at that point. I'm having a worry at that time. I have entered into a movie called Worrying About Grandchild, <laughs> which I can't do anything about, you know. Mostly all the worries that I worry about, even if I'm worried about famine in Afghanistan, which is like a, a, really a significant thing. Worrying about it is not going to do a thing. If I, if I <coughs> wanted to do something about it, and maybe I could inform myself about what different things could be done or whatever. Could I do something? Are there organizations I could support? But thinking about it in a way that doesn't get anywhere except fatigue the mind, I thought to myself, apropos of the Buddha saying, you can choose to take the attention and either put it in here, which is unwholesome, or put it over here in a way that might be generous and thoughtful and looking to serve and appreciative and how to choose to do that rather than that and that you could do that 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 was that that was what the buddha prescribed as wise effort for um, cultivating a wise mind and i thought you know that really you know when you go in a multiplex movie if you go to new york you can go into a building where they have 12 movie theaters in that one building. You go in, you buy a ticket, but then you can go upstairs, up the escalator, you can go six more movies, and here's another movie. It's like we have the cho choice all day long to go into 100 million movie theaters, or we could stay here and keep our eyes open and look for tracks, or bless, or appreciate that, uh, where was it? Well, oh, I can't find it. Doesn't matter. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, then I'm really finished. You can really go if you have to. Really, if you want to, you can go. This is Anne Sexton. I have a joy in all in the hair I brush each morning, in the cannon towel newly washed that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the kettle that heats my coffee each morning in the spoon and the chair that cry, hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my silver plate cup upon each morning. All this is God right here in my pea green house every morning. And I mean 
though I often forget to give thanks, to faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing as the holy birds at the kitchen window peck into their marriage of seeds. So while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for this God, this laughter of the morning, lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared, I've heard, dies young. Okay. That's Anne Sexton. Isn't that good? Anyway, it's a pleasure to start the year with you. For everybody who just came, come again. This is what we do all the time. We keep each other's morale up, don't we? Don't you love this cover of The New Yorker? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.